Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Job chapter 1, verse 6, through Job chapter 2, verse 10. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, ah, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, and he said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans came and fell upon them and took them, and they struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, eh, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking down, up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, yeah, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. As pastor of congregational care, this past week I've had the privilege of ministering to Duane and Alfie Christen. And I need to let you know that Alfie passed away and went into the presence of the Lord on Friday evening about 10 o'clock. After a long battle with illness and suffering from COVID, this has been a hard time of sorrow for Duane and <clears throat> his children as they have lost their loved one, or as Duane would call her, his sweetie. But when I talked with Duane yesterday, he was saying, we are just praising the Lord because we know that she's at home now with her Savior and she's no longer suffering. We are so grateful to God for his faithfulness to us in all of these years. Life <clears throat> is full of suffering. It is painful. And that's the reason why we're going through this book of Job, because we together need to learn how to suffer well. Suffering is inevitable. Many of you this morning, I know, are living in the valley of the shadow of death right now. Some have lost loved ones, like Duane Christian and his family. Some are struggling with chronic illness and pain, or maybe even terminal cancer for which there is no known cure. Some of you are gripped with financial loss and overwhelming debt. I know some of you cry yourself to sleep every night because of the separation and estrangement you have with your spouse or with your children and members of your family. So it is our prayer as we study this book of Job and how he suffered that it will help all of us to learn how to suffer well. We need to be strengthened in our faith and our confidence in God so that we can endure suffering in a way that honors Him. So during this time of Lent, leading up to Easter, through these 40 days of prayer and fasting, we want to work through this book of Job in order to strengthen our faith in God and draw us closer to Him with complete 
confidence in his good providence, his good intentions for us. Now, those first two chapters of the book of Job draw back the curtain of heaven, and they give us a glimpse of the function of the, maybe the throne room of God, where all of the heavenly powers gather together to give a report to God Almighty, the ruler. And what we need to notice is that both Satan and God are involved in our suffering. You know, this is the only place in Scripture where we are told that sometimes the heavenly leaders, the hosts of heaven, called the sons of God, assemble to give a report to God. And we learn that Satan himself can attend and be there among them. The name for Satan, the Hebrew word used for Satan in these two chapters is adversary. So we conclude that he is not part of the sons of God, but he is surprisingly allowed to attend. And in our text today, thank you for this reading, about two of those gatherings of the powers, heavenly powers before God, and Satan is right there among them. We actually have the conversation between Yahweh God and Satan the adversary in these two meetings. It's a startling conversation in both scenes because it is God who brings up the godly character of his servant Job, to, and he mentions him to Satan. And this gives Satan an opening to challenge the faithfulness of Job. And as a result, God gives Satan permission to bring suffering and loss on Job. But we learn that even though Job's faith is severely tested, he remains faithful and never abandons his trust and worship of Yahweh God. Now, this narrative is told briefly, but it's so startling. And it sort of rattles some of our presuppositions about God and who he is, and about suffering, and about God's providence in our lives. I think the first thing that jumps out to me is this fact that God uses Satan to accomplish his will. Satan, you know, has great power. Satan sometimes is called in the Bible the ruler of the world, or the god of this world, or the prince of the power of the air, or the cosmic power over this present darkness. So this helps us understand the opening dialogue in both these scenes. God asks Satan where, what he has been doing, and it, the answer is the same in both cases. The Lord Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? <laughs> and Satan answers the Lord, from going to and fro, and on the earth, and walking up and down on it. Well, that's not all the truth. 
You see, the apostle Peter takes this conversation and he gives us a clearer understanding of what Satan is actually doing. First Peter chapter 5, he says, your adversary, Peter uses the real term for Satan, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's what he's really doing. And Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice the power of Satan in bringing disaster on Job and his family. He is so powerful. In two of the calamities that were caused by, two of the calamities were caused by evil men, the Sabaeans in verse 15 and the Chaldeans in verse 17. But two other of the calamities were called by what insurance adjusters would call acts of God. It was lightning and fire in verse 16, and a tornado in verse 19. You see, Satan has the power to move nations and to move nature in order to accomplish his purposes. Then Satan attacks Job's health, and he brings severe illness to his body. Satan can bring disease and even death to people. He can blind the minds of people. He can hinder the work of God, and he can tempt believers to stumble in their faith. He is like a roaring lion seeking to devour people on earth. And it is true that Satan is like a roaring lion that can destroy, but he is a lion on a leash. Satan's power is limited by the permissive will of God. Satan can wield his power only when Yahweh God allows him to function. Notice how Satan challenges God and then God gives him permission to attack Job, but within limits and boundaries. In the first scene, chapter 1, verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has, his possessions, his family, is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Don't touch his health or his life. God gives Satan the right to attack his possessions, but not his person. First, you can touch his possessions and his family, but not his health or his life. It is God who controls Satan. And it is God who uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. Did you notice that when Satan had done his work of taking Job's wealth and his family, Job says in verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job says, ultimately, it was the Lord himself who took away his children and his wealth. 
Then the inspired writer of this book makes a comment to avoid any misunderstanding. Lest anyone say that Job should not have attributed Satan's work to God. He writes, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is not sin to say that when Satan, what Satan does is ultimately God's work because God rules Satan. Similarly, in the second heavenly scene, God says to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then verse 7 makes it very explicit that Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and Satan afflicted Job with loathsome sores. But again, in verse 10, Job says, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not also receive evil? In other words, Job again goes all the way up to the sovereignty of God over Satan. And he says that his sickness is from God. Satan may have been the nearer cause, but ultimately it is from God. And again, the inspired writer writes not to criticize Job here. He writes at the end of verse 10, in all this Job did not sin with his lips. It is not a sin to say that a sickness that Satan causes is from the Lord. Job's rock of refuge and his hope in everything else, when everything else is crumbling, is in the absolute sovereignty of God. But that sort of raises a question, doesn't it? How can God, a holy, loving God, use evil and Satan to do his will? Isn't that a contradiction of who he is? Do you remember the story of Joseph? Out of hatred and jealousy, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. In their evil imagination, they reported to their father that he was dead, and their plans were wicked and evil, and it ended up hurting seriously this young teenage boy of 17. For 13 years, he worked as a slave in Egypt and spent several of those years in prison. But then God gave him the ability to interpret dreams, and he was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and what he had about the future. And so Pharaoh elevated Joseph to second in command for the whole government. And Joseph devised a plan to save Egypt from famine and to provide food for the whole world. And at the end of his life, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, the brothers, their purpose, their plan was evil. But God somehow was working through their evil plans, and he meant it for good. How can God intend good with the evil intentions of wicked men? 
I frankly don't quite understand all of that. But I think we need to recognize that sometimes when bad things happen, God is at work accomplishing his purposes, even through the evil acts of sinful men. That's a mystery, but it should be a comfort to all of us. God intends and plans and uses the evil works of Satan and men to accomplish his will. Yet God is not to blame for the evil and the calamities. The writer of Job closes his book in the last chapter by referring back to God, Job's terrible sufferings this way. Then came to him his brothers and sisters and comforted him for all the evil disasters that the Lord had brought upon him. Yet God is not to blame for the evil. Satan is real. He's full of hate, but he is not sovereign. God is sovereign. The second thing we need to notice here, God uses suffering as an opportunity for us to bring praise and glory to his name. This is a side of God's sovereign providence that we don't often consider. But now we learn that God uses suffering in order to give people an opportunity to praise and worship him, even when they have lost everything. After both episodes of suffering brought on Job by Satan under God's control, Job does not sin, but turns to God in worship. In the interaction between God and Satan, God points to Job's godly life as an example of someone who fears God, who worships him and seeks to please him. And it seems in that conversation that this is very important to God. It pleases God when his people praise him joyfully for the glory of his grace and goodness. But when Job's health fails, it proves too much for his wife. Don't be too harsh on her. She had endured with him the loss of ten children and had buried them. And her husband now has lost all of his wealth. And she now faces with her husband a future in destitution. And his life seems to be ebbing away before her eyes. And her faith simply collapses. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is enough. I can't take any more. That must have been brought a great smile on the face of Satan. But then comes the stunning victory of Job's face, Job's faith. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not also receive evil? Both comforts and calamities come from the hand of God. He had some rock-solid confidence in the sovereign providence of God, and he was not going to relinquish that, even in the midst of his suffering. And neither should we. Picture for a moment Satan in heaven, surrounded in that assembly with 10,000 angels waiting Job's response. And then Job answers, and unknown to him, 20,000 arms are raised, and 10,000 mighty voices shout, Worthy is the Lord God of Job. And what does Satan do? He flees from the presence and the praise of a holy God. And can you imagine now the smile that comes on God's face as he hears Job's response? You see, the testing of Job's faith has resulted in great honor and praise to him. And this is important to God. God desires the glory and the honor and the adoration and worship of his people. God had proposed the challenge, and Satan had bet that somehow Job would fail. But God counted on Job to go through the fire and not renounce his faith. Why is this so important to God? Because he knows that faith under fire brings even more praise and glory to his name. Faith tested by the fire of suffering gives us an opportunity to trust God completely. Faith tested proves that our faith is sure and true. Suffering has important, eternal significance. Because when our faith is tested under fire, we can bring more profound praise and glory to God in our worship. From God's perspective, when we voluntarily, out of suffering, bring Him praise, we are like the worship of a wounded soldier. The worship of a wounded soldier somehow brings him more glory and more honor. And this is what he desires from each of us, that our faithfulness under pressure would honor the glory of his grace. Paul, you know, was a wounded soldier with a thorn in his body. And this thorn, which was a messenger from Satan, was also the source of his dependence and praise to God. Listen to what he says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn 
was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness as a wounded soldier, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Question, does God have to hurt us in order to get us to worship and praise Him? How can a loving God show His love to us by hurting us, putting us through suffering? C.S. Lewis writes a lot about suffering. He had his book, The Problem of Pain, and then he married Joy Davidson, and she got cancer, and she died. And it was devastating for C.S. Lewis. And he wrote about it in A Grief Observed. And he said, when I watched her suffering, I wasn't really tempted to turn my back on God, but my image of who God was began to change, and I began to see God not as a loving father, but as a cosmic sadist. Somehow I began to see him as having a cruel streak, where his love could become very angry. And I knew that that was wrong, he said, and I had to change my view of God. And he said, I had to learn to look at him not as a cosmic sadist, but as, as a surgeon who has wholly good intentions. The kinder and more conscientious he or she is, the more inexorably she will keep on cutting. And if he yielded to our entreaties to stop the pain, if he stopped before the operation was complete, then all the pain up to that point would have been useless. And I needed to learn to trust the good intentions of a doctor. Ultimately, Lewis says, I learned to trust God as the Apostle Paul who said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Finally, I think we need to learn that God's plans and use, he plans and uses suffering in order to strengthen our faith. Remember, Job didn't know about, at the beginning, about of his suffering, he didn't know about this conversation in heaven between God and Satan. He didn't know that this was all according to some grand eternal plan. All he knew was that once he was wealthy and comfortable and blessed with ten children, and he worshipped God out of his influence, and then he lost all of his wealth and his possessions, but he remained faithful in trusting God in all these things. Then he lost his own health, and he suffered terribly in painful disease. He was clothed in rags. He seated on a pile of ashes, scraping the, the scabs from the boils that covered his body. And yet Job did not turn from God like his wife. He did not blame God for his suffering and loss. He didn't understand what happened to him or why. But he simply trusted God to send him blessing or suffering according to his good providence. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? Rick Warren, former pastor of Saddleback Church, and his wife Kay lost their youngest son to suicide about 10 years ago. He had suffered mental illness all his life, and in a moment of deep depression, he took his life. Rick said it was the worst day of his life for him and his wife. He said he survived this ordeal only by running toward God, not away from him. And I know that when tragedy strikes, some people run away from God. I know even in the history of this church a few years ago, there was a couple. She had suffered a severe stroke and she was in a wheelchair. And as a result of that, her husband turned his back on God, said, I don't want anything more to do with him, if that's the way he's going to treat us and he ran away from God. But Rick Warren says, all I could do at that moment was cry out to God. Our most passionate prayers are when we are in the most pain. We don't pray superficial, perfunctory prayers when we are hurting deeply. Instead, we pour out to him and tell him exactly how we feel. We argue and we bring complaints and questions to God. We lament, as David did in many of the Psalms. We express our grief and our shock and our sorrow and our struggle, and we lay it all on the altar before God. We run toward Him. And as you pour out your heart to God, you draw closer to Him, and you begin to learn to trust Him even when you don't understand. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we were under pressure far beyond our ability to endure. 
so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we were under the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. You see, suffering can make us more like Christ. What is amazing to me that that is true even of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read that Jesus learned obedience to God through suffering. It says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned from the things he suffered. He learned obedience to God. Now, Jesus suffered many things in his life. He was lonely. He was exhausted. He was mocked. He was misunderstood. He was criticized. He was rejected by his own family. He was falsely accused. But in Verse 9, it says, suffering made <clears throat> Jesus perfect or mature and complete. It is through suffering that God purifies and refines us, that he molds us, he breaks us, he fills us, and he makes us more like his son, Jesus Christ. I think it's Johnny Erickson Tata, who has suffered for 50 years, who said, God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. That's why James, and you know, we studied through the book of James, and the first lesson we learn in the book of James Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, what? Perfect, complete, mature, lacking in nothing. Johnny Erickson Tata became a paraplegic at the age of 17 from a diving accident, and she spent the last 50 years in a wheelchair. She writes, so, for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus, dying to self, and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. And God has been answering my prayer, exposing the dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. A no answer to my request for a miraculous healing, physical healing, has meant purged sin, 
a love for the loss, increased compassion, stretched hope, an increase in faith, an appetite for grace, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer. Oh, bless God for my wheelchair. We can only find peace and rest for our soul, not in freedom from suffering, but by growing in grace and love for Jesus Christ through suffering. Jesus is a supreme example for us of someone who turned suffering into victory. First Peter 3 puts it this way, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus came to earth to die. And it was God's plan that he come to earth to be rejected and beaten and bruised and crucified. It was planned by God that he would be betrayed by Judas, that he would be condemned by wicked, jealous leaders and godless Roman governors. God used the suffering and the death of Jesus to bring us the greatest gift of all, forgiveness and salvation and freedom from sin and eternal life in his family. In fact, it was God's plan that the suffering and death of his beloved son might be our gift of eternal life and an inglorious inheritance in heaven waiting for us when he returns. You see, only God can turn crucifixions into resurrections. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.